You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. And this episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan. This running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday, all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. Now, it's an OCR-specific training plan, but 95% of this is just running. So it doesn't matter if you're training for an OCR or a marathon or whatever. It all is in there. Speed work, threshold, hill work, up, down, long run, long qualities, and plenty of compromised running. Everything we talk about is just waiting for you. That's right. The hardest part about creating your own training schedule is deciding what to do the next day or that day. We take care of that for you, which I think is worth the uh, $19.99 a month in itself. It's cheap, right? And you can cancel at any time. If you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragging? On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com, $19.99 a month, cancel anytime you want. I don't know about you, Bracken, but I have uh, never felt so bad about my own running than I do sitting here in front of you today. I assume, I assume it's not because of me, what you're looking <laughs> at here. No, it's not because of you. It's not the workout I posted on Strava this weekend. didn't see it, so I don't think so. Okay. It wouldn't make you feel bad. As we are about to discuss... The world marathon record was broken mm-hmm. by Elliot Kipchoge this weekend, broke his own world marathon record at Berlin. And to go and look and break down how fast that man runs in order to do this makes me feel like a giant pile of you-know-what. How about you, Bracken? Well, coming off of knee surgery last year, I got a mini block of training in and jumped into that one-mile road race. Mm-hmm. I ran 4.44, and I was very pleased with myself. And if you took the average of his marathon, now he went out faster than he finished, but if you just took his average mile, I would have been seven seconds behind already. At mile. <laughs> one mile into the race. And in reality, he went out hotter than that. He averaged 437 per mile for 26.2 miles, and he faded home. Yep. Faded home. His first half marathon was faster than Ryan Hall's American record for the half marathon. 59 teens or something? Yes, and then he came home in 60 and change. We are all human but one of us, I think, Brack, and there is only one non-human who puts running shoes on. It's not Jesus. It's Elliot Kipchoge is who it is. Unbelievable. Jesus only had sandals. He didn't have alpha flies. Well, sometimes my sandals are so comfy. I think about running in those things. A little duct tape, strap them on. Unbelievable. And it's going to spawn our topic for today. A bit of uh, Elliot's marathon and then the ongoings at OCRWC. But how do you break down? What do you make of his marathon? I looked at his splits and... I saw 
I saw like even a comment under one of the posts, um, you know, Elio Kipchoge, Kipchoge came through or his average pace would have him come through the two mile and nine fourteen. And one of the greatest U.S. distance runners of all time, Emma Coburn, commented on it and said, well, my two mile PR is nine fifteen. So I know I could maybe <laughs> hang for him for two miles on my best day. And this is a full time U.S. Olympian multiple time in the steeplechase saying world champion, world champion, Emma Coburn, in this Olympic medalist. I could stay with Elio Kachogi for two miles. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I couldn't. What do you make of it? Well, I know that my 5K PR is a minute and a half slower than his first 5K split was. Yeah, what did he come through in 14.0 or something? I want to say he was right around like 14.18 or something like that, and then went like 14.14 and then started getting slightly slower from there. But either way, we are talking about the fastest people that we know personally. We know a 13.50 guy that we race against and another 13.50 guy that we race against, and their PR would have beaten him for three miles and maybe only 100 or 200 meters after that. And he would have rolled by, and then he would have run this final 23 miles at the same pace. It's just so humanizing. It is. And you watch and you watch him race, and even just watching, like there's a lot of videos out there of him finishing his last like 100 meters or so. He looks exactly as he did the first 100 meters. The expression on his face is he could be so bored with the current situation or so comfortable with the current situation, you would never know that the man was on world record pace. The smile at the end, the relaxation, the composure it takes to run that fluidly for that long, Mm -hmm. like a damn metronome. And you can't tell he's running that fast because he's so efficient. You look at him and you can watch a 21-minute 5Ker with quicker turnover looking like they are running for the dickens, as they say. And Elliot Kipchoge looks like he's cool as a cucumber on a recovery run. That's efficiency. Just my, it's just so humanizing on so many levels. That's all. The greatest runners. If you did a split screen, but uh, vertically, if you had top half of their body on one screen and lower half on the other, and you blanked out one, if you looked at their upper body, you'd think they're running eight-minute pace. And if you looked at their lower body, you'd think they're running four-minute mm-hmm. pace. They have this freakish ability to high back kick, turn over fast, long but compact at the same time stride and their upper body is just fluid and half asleep. And he has that. And it never, ever changes. Like he, I think he is the confluence of all the greatest characteristics to make a great marathoner. He's very small. He's like five, seven, one fifteen, or one twenty. He has, he's not a foot over foot runner, meaning if there was a line on the ground, his foot, each foot doesn't land on the, on the line. His right foot will land on the right side of it and left would be on the left side, which means that it torques his hips a little less. There's less room for stride breakdown Mm -hmm. and it responds perfectly to super shoes and the alpha fly in particular, and that he can boing, boing, boing foot to foot without having to rotate internally or externally in order to keep that happening. I think that's an important and overlooked part of his stride is that it is made for super shoes. But more than anything else, he was blessed with and has crafted the ability to never change his stride. When he slows or speeds up, his stride doesn't break down. Even in the races we've seen him not look great, his stride doesn't change. And that is just like a superhuman characteristic that most people cannot keep for that long. Yeah, and this brought up the conversation then. What you saw was... Pro-level elite athletes chiming in, you know, the question is, how long could you stay with Eliud? 
Well, most of you would get on a treadmill at his mm-hmm. pace and fall right off the back within the first three seconds because you can't actually run as fast as he is averaging for even 10 seconds. Most of you listening can't run 437 mile pace at an all-out sprint. But the pros <clears throat> were sort of dissecting, like, how long could you stay with Elliot? And it was fun to see the pros chime in and be like, I mean, he's a minute off the world 10K record on the track, basically, coming through, like, his 10K mark. And basically, everybody peters out well before Elliot is obviously mm-hmm. done with his marathon. And as you're going to dive into this, it was you were what? You were reading a thread on Let's Run? You were in the, the doldrums of the internet? Yeah, let's Run. What was it? Okay, explain. If, if Jakob Ingebrigtsen started with Eliud, how long could he maintain for if he raced all out? And Jakob, I, at, in Eliud's prime, I think he was right around 330. I can't remember if he was 330 or 333 in the 1500. I thought it was 331. So let's say 331 plus or minus a second or two, which is right around 350 in a mile. I believe Jakob's PR is 328. 328. So in their current Jakob is at least two, somewhere between two and five seconds faster in the mile. He's faster in the 5K and probably faster in the 10K as well. And yet the consensus is he'd make it somewhere between 13 and 17 miles, maybe 20, and then would just be eviscerated by him. So all the current pro bests, Jacob Kiplimo, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, anyone like that, or people from the past who are exponentially faster at any distance other than marathon could not beat him in a marathon, but couldn't even keep it for more than three quarters of the marathon. Even guys who are faster at half marathon than Eliud can't stay with him for three quarters of a marathon. There's just massive, massive destruction that would happen to them somewhere between half and three quarters where he would start tightening the screws at that point even if he couldn't run more than five or ten seconds faster for the half he could then continue on and no one else on earth can do that right well i'll pull this out of thin air but i would say that on the men's side i would say mile on up full-time supported sponsored athletes this is their living mile on up i would bet my bank account that less than 50% of those men could stay with Elliot Kipchoge through a half marathon. And these are athletes who are getting paid full-time as athletes, relying on race winnings to make their living, couldn't stay with him for half the race duration. And these are people who are the best of the best in the world. That's insane. I mean, maybe I'm undershooting it. Maybe it's 70% couldn't stay with him through a half marathon distance. Unbelievable. Well, in the U.S. right now, we haven't had anyone break 60 minutes this year. So not a single person in the United States could stay through with Eliud Kipchoge for half of a marathon. Based off this year's predictions, I don't think anyone can. No. Exactly. I mean, our our, our U.S. record is 59 and change, 59.30 or something like that. Unbelievable. So, no. <laughs> no, I couldn't. So to, to pivot, not pivot, but then to piggyback this conversation, which is what we want to get into today, is... So why can't these athletes stay with Eliud Kachogi? And also, why did we see this weekend at OCRWC in Vermont that people who were putting in big volume outperformed those who were not? Those who overtaught to the test, overteached to the test, overdurationed, over mileaged, you know, just put more time in. And it's the same thing that we saw at OCRWC with who is successful. And the same reason Eliud Kachogi can run circles around even Jakob Ingebrigtsen 
is because of, let's call it training up. How do you like that term? Mm -hmm. I like it. And we have danced around this topic. We've mentioned it. We've used it in Q&A answers before. But this is going to be one whole episode designed around the idea of you can always race down, but it's really tough to race up. Where when you have trained for a marathon, you can run a good half. But when you've trained for the half, at some point your wheels are going to fall off unless you do everything perfectly. And we see that in every race distance. And so for people who take a look at their season and say, I have this, 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 and this I want to do, how do I schedule my training? What do I prioritize? The message of this episode is that when in doubt, train longer. That doesn't mean run bigger mileage necessarily. It doesn't mean do crazy things in training is if you have a 10K, a half marathon, and a marathon on your plan for the year, you train for the marathon and you can add in sprinkles of the 5K, the 10K, the half marathon in there. But the overall framework of your training must be for your longest event or one notch longer than your longest event. And you can always sharpen down, but you can't cram in volume late. That's exactly right. Yeah, we probably alluded towards this dozens of times over the years. I guess mm-hmm. I can say years now. We've been going at it for almost three. Um, but we've never focused on it, like for an entire episode. It's like, you want to run a fast 5K? All right, let's train for a 10K. You often see people go out and let's say they're doing, they're a 5K focused runner, which a lot of us are. They want to improve their road 5K or whatever it is. And you see them go out and they do three miles of quality work on the track. Now, they do 12 400s and they do three by a mile or six 800s or a ladder that adds up to three miles of work. Well, that's great. Your race is three miles. You're training to three miles in your quality sessions. But can you imagine what it would do if maybe you did four, heaven forbid, five miles of quality work and then train down or race down to the 5K? What that would do for your stay power, what that would do for your ability to sustain a high, higher effort for longer. And exactly as you said, to just the other side of the coin. It doesn't mean you need to go out and run 120 mile weeks in order to run a good marathon, but you can also look at it in the sense of like, okay, how big are your actual quality days? And what are those teaching and training you for? Mm-hmm. And so you have like both sides that you can, you can sort of dive into um, there. And, and so I don't know what side you want to start on, but I'm going to, I'm going to deflect to you because it was your idea today, Bracken. Well, I want to look at what happened this weekend with Eliud, with Tyler Veerman, Ryland Schottig, with uh, with Annie Doobie, with Lindsey Webster, all these athletes who had very successful weekends across the board, Chris Roglowski. Chris would probably be the epitome of the example, but continue. Yeah, but weren't training for the low event. They were training for the high event. If I were in Tyler Veerman's boat, Let's just not say, let's say I'm in my boat and I'm looking at, I'm going to go do the OCR world's 15 K obstacle race championship. I need to be ready for nine to 10 miles of racing, 40 to 50 obstacles and three to 4,000 feet of climbing and descending. And that's probably what I would have done. I would have tried to see how fast can I get at that distance And what that does, your example of preparing for 5K worth of work for a 5K distance, that means you can get through that distance on your best day when things go well. But what it doesn't build in is a buffer for when things don't go well. If someone takes you out too hot, 
you don't have extra staying power there. If you go out and there's surges, if there's hills, if you stumble, if you get knocked down, if you get caught in a pack and have to make a big move up, if you're just battling back and forth, it doesn't build in wiggle room and fitness. And that's what I would have done for the OCR World 15K and who knows how it would have gone. But if I would have looked at it and said, what if I was ready for a 20K? Could I build in that extra volume, 5,000 feet of vert, maybe 60 obstacles? I'd feel a lot more comfortable, but then my long run starts getting in the way of my quality work, and I just don't know. Then there's Tyler Veerman. He's preparing for 24 hours of obstacle racing in Tahoe at altitude, which is going to have somewhere between 20 and 40,000 feet of vert, several hundred obstacles, 24 hours of racing. It gets canceled one week before he needs to make a decision. He decides to pivot and go to Stratton, Vermont and run a 15K race, and he smashed everyone. By like three minutes. Yeah, and that that example right there is that all my worrying I would have done about, am I fast enough for this course? Am I sharp enough? Am I skilled enough on the obstacles? Can I fly in and out? was just obliterated by this guy who came in with the most massive engine in the field outside of maybe Atkins or Rylan and combined it with his God-given ability to be athletic and all the obstacle work he's done. And he flew through the course. He was able to be aggressive. He won the first climb. He didn't do any specific speed work to be ready for 15K of nasty. He got ready for 24 hours of nasty and combined with all the work he's done over the years, he was 15K at nasty. But what didn't happen is fate. Ryland closed the gap on him at one point from over a minute down to like 35 seconds. And what did Tyler do? He smashed the final descent and accelerated all the way through the festival grounds and put it back up over a minute again Mm -hmm. because he didn't fade. So that's a very long example, but that is the prime example of what would have happened based off of how we tend as humans to think about a task towards what if you just got rid of that? And said, forget a 15K, I'm training for a 50K or a 500K. Like Obviously, there's a statute of limitations here, but it's probably farther away than what you'd expect. The old 500K, huh? Yeah. Um, you know, Annie Doobie, Chris Roglowski, Ryland Shadig, Tyler Veerman. Any of you listening, I'd like to point out that you got lumped in the same group as Eliud Kipchoge. So remember this. Remember mm-hmm. this day. Um, and the fascinating thing about Tyler Veerman is that he, I don't believe he's done anything outside of the Spartan circuit as far as OCR. So the amount of time that he has had to lose on those obstacles on top of his run performance, just based on, um, exposure to them says even more about his performance. But I think this yeah. comes back to, and God, we allude to this all the time. In fact, I'm going to see this gentleman later today to get my, my back cracked. Um, it comes down to the stupid Fred Clary principle and it's, it's cheap and it's sometimes confusing to say, Oh, hundred train to 120% train to like, how do you train to 120%? That's not even a real number. Like I gave it 120% out there today. You're like, that's not possible. hundred percent is as high as it goes. Mm-hmm. But what Dr. Fred Clary means is train. So you're more ready than you need to be for the test you are about to take. And so that's really what this outlines on both the intensity front and the volume front of your training. And I would argue that this past weekend at the OCRWC, the only two people who probably trained to the test 
and it worked out well for was VJ Jones and Ida Steensgaard, who I believe are maybe mm-hmm. a little lower mileage, were ready to go hurt for 20 to 30 minutes, and they nailed it. They freaking nailed it. But other than those two, I would say any big players, even Lindsay, even Ryan, even Ryland, Veerman, like you said, Chris Roglowski, Annie, um, <clears throat> all have been running and prepping for big, long races and race down. And those are all of them who ended up on the podium, other than maybe a Ryan Kempson, but I don't know what his volume has been like recently. The point being is I don't, you don't ever see somebody race up. I mean, ever, I might say ever see somebody like, oh, he's a classic five care, but he's going to jump into the marathon, go out and just smash in that first transition, unless they put in years of volume. And I know you bring this up a lot, (laughs) maybe to remind people that you're somewhat fast, but when you were ultra training and you ran your mile road race (laughs) and ran 419 or 420, I forget what it was. And I'd remind people of that all the time too, if I were you, but you were going out for five hour (laughs) runs. You were putting in more volume than you ever have since I've known you. And on a whim, you go out and run a mile faster than you have in your adult life. And I've experienced the exact same damn thing in my training. It's like, when in doubt, like, should you go run two miles of quarter mile repeats or should you run five, even though they'll be slower? Five. Duh. There's no question to answer here. It's always more to a certain degree. And and I think mm-hmm. it's just like, it really shined this weekend on so opposite ends of the spectrum between the marathon and OCRWC. It's like, how do we not talk about this? How do we not remind people that Bracken's a 419 miler while ultra training, you know? <laughs> Oh man! Just saying. I'm glad you saw where I was yeah. going with this. <laughs> it's not hard to see. <laughs> well, I do want to talk about myself a little bit here. Huh. When I was training for that Seven Sisters Sky Race in Ireland that we did not end up being able to do, it has like twelve or thirteen thousand feet of vert. So you go up twelve or thirteen thousand, you got to descend it too. And so I went and did nine by thousand on the treadmill, thinking if I could do nine by thousand on short rest, I was taking sixty to nine, nine by a thousand feet of vertical gain, just to correct. So I was going to hit nine thousand feet of vert for the day with sixty to ninety seconds rest. That's more demanding in terms of resting in between and time in between climbing than on race day, and I won't be able to use poles very well on a treadmill. So maybe that 9,000 was worth more like 12,000. If I can get through this, I think I could get through race day. And that's not great logic, but I was on a compressed timeline and it was what it was. I worked with what I had and I couldn't do 13 or 14 by thousand on the treadmill because I couldn't physically. And I got to six or seven and the wheels came off and it was just a death march through the end. And I got done and I said, all right, just like I thought, if I could just get it done, I can go do this. But in the back of my head, I thought, Bracken, you didn't do any downhill during that. Mm-hmm. None. And that was only three and a half hours. What's going to happen for the next four hours and all the, the descent and the possibility of rolling ankles and having to run technical terrain is going to rock your hips and all your stabilizers. Deep down, I knew I wasn't ready. Even if I had done 13 by 1,000, that would have been great. But if I'm cracking on 10, 11, 12, 13 on those reps, am I really ready to race 13,000 feet of vert or am I ready to survive? And anyone who's ever run a race knows that if you are in a race with anyone close by and you're bleeding out, you lose. 
Unless you have so many minutes and minutes and minutes on them, you lose. Unless they're bleeding out too, which sometimes you get lucky with. <laughs> yeah, but if you're both bleeding out and they notice you're bleeding hard, they suddenly have more in them. So it's just a bad situation going to a race that's going to be seven, seven and a half hours and thinking, I definitely have five hours in me, maybe six. Like you should know I can start fading at mile seven or eight of a, of a workout <laughs> and by nine I'm cracked. And on race day, I'm going to be ready to go. Now that's a very extreme example, but it's a failure of my timeline. I didn't have time to build up to that. That nine by thousand should have been week one of a 14 week build moving up towards 14 or 15 or 16 by thousand foot gain. It couldn't be my penultimate effort because it would have set me up for failure. But that's the way we typically think is that other one's too crazy. So why would I do that in training? Well, the reality is if the workout that preps you for it is too crazy, the race is too crazy for you, which puts you back into complete rather than compete. And it's an important thing to wrap our mind around. That is a tricky thing with the ultras, though, because at some point you can't train past your race distance or you can't in good yeah. faith yet uh, overdo it because then you're actually taking away from race day. So there is like another angle to that conversation, right? Which I don't know if we need to get into today, but. Well, let's do it. Let's actually finish that thought out. Okay, go ahead. If nine by thousand is all, or maybe I could get up to 10 or 11, is all I can safely do. Like I shouldn't be in my 80 degree basement sweating with my head in between the rafters for more than four hours that day. It's just diminishing returns. How do I then follow the 120% rule? Well, go ahead. I should probably get out again the next day and run some downhill. Like that's bare minimum. I should go climb or descend again the next day. If I can't do it all in one day or get my weekly average, if it's a 14,000 foot race, I might want to search for triple that weekly average for two months leading up to it. You know, I might need to hit 50,000 feet of a week leading up to that. If I can't do it all in a nine hour session, maybe I need to be hitting 15 to 20 hours per week for a few months. That's how you overextend. Yep. That or intensity, which we do through interval training. But when it comes to that much time on feet, it's hard to, it's hard to beat that with doing spicy work, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had an athlete, I had three athletes who were supposed to do the Spartan ultra world champs that had the rug pulled out from underneath of them. And all three have pivoted and one chose to, um, <clears throat> Everest in which I alluded towards, which is basically covering 29. How did that go? Uh, it didn't, I mean, well, it went well, he didn't finish it. Um, and the reason for this is, and we probably should have talked about it beforehand, me and this athlete, uh, Eric McIntyre, who gave it a heck of a run, rad dad bot on Instagram. But, you know, he sprained his ankle like six weeks before and we were stuck on the treadmill going up because he couldn't handle hmm. descending. And we snuck it in beforehand um, as much as we could. And we did get, we crammed a little bit, but point being, what goes up must come down. And he made it to 15,000 and some odd feet of vertical gain. But eventually... When you talk about being ready for the tester overtraining, what we weren't able, he was able to climb on the weekend. Sure, set that treadmill at 30% and go. That's great. But when you can't swing harder than it demands, and that would be the downhills, which was our limiting factor due to his sprained ankle, um, eventually it's just like his body didn't even function anymore. Like crawl up the yeah. mountain maybe, and then roll down would have been his only option left because – everything was toast. It just kind of outlines exactly the scenario you were maybe going to find yourself in. Um, 
and that's maybe a little bit of a tangent that doesn't really need to be said, but no, he did not complete it. But yes, I think he gave it his college try considering the circumstances. Um, so let's talk, let's just segment this really quick. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus on Eliud, how he started the conversation, why none of these guys can stay with him, what it is that makes him so durable and why if he had to, and I bet a bank account on this too, I've said that twice already today, that if he had to race down and get ready for a 10K in three months, we could see him challenging for a world record in that right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. I really would not doubt it, considering his stay power. So why can Eliud endure and other people cannot to his level? Well, he's the outlier of all outliers genetically. And that, I don't think that you can overvalue that. He and Bekele are probably the two biggest outliers we've seen at the marathon distance. But he has gone fairly uninterrupted in training. That's part of his 120% rule there, is that... He's probably trained 20% more than everyone else. Like over his lifespan, not just like this week in total. Yeah, over the last decade. He just hasn't missed a lot of time. And he is hyper consistent. And he's hitting the type of workouts that build stay power. So he builds his training plan around quality long runs, threshold intervals, and overall volume. You're running twice a day, every day except maybe Sunday. He might only do one. And he's getting a quality long run every week. He's getting threshold intervals every single week at a bare minimum. He's running 160 to 180 kilometers a week minimum. And and it might even be higher than that. And he's just not missing workouts. He's not missing days, and he's dedicated his life to it. But when he gets into marathon stride, I believe he spent more time at marathon stride than anyone else in the field. 120-mile weeks. Um, Have you looked into exact workouts he's done when you say, like, threshold intervals? Do you know? Have you Mm -hmm. glanced in? Does a lot of 10-ish, 8 to 12 by 1,000 on short rest at lactate threshold-ish. So, so for him, marathon pace was 437, maybe lactate threshold for him is 420, which makes marathon pace seem comfortable for at least yeah. 16 miles. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's as crazy as it is. That means when he goes out at two at 61 pace, like he did for his previous world record, he's closer to aerobic than anaerobic. And then he can crank down. Yeah. Which is wild. And then you're outlining the fact that for, well, really a decade, but probably closer to 15 years when he started marathoning, um, just start talking about all those bank deposits, all that money in the Mm -hmm. bank that he has to still withdraw. It's like he's been training for the marathon distance longer. Would you say longer than any marathoner, high level marathoner that we know of? He committed at a pretty young age. Yeah. 2012. Do you know the story of how he got to the marathon? No. He was a world champ indoor. He was a runner-up outdoor track. And he was left off by the Kenyan Olympic Committee, left off the team for, I believe, the 10K, 5 or 10, for the 2012 Olympics. They handpick those Kenyans. They basically choose. There's no qualifying meet, I believe. He was inexplicably left off the team, and so he went to the roads. (laughs) Like... He was, we were gifted the greatest marathoner of all time by accident, Mm -hmm. which is a story, like a story for another day. 
and, and exploring that whole path. But he went to the roads a little earlier than you would have expected, given the fact that he was a sub-13 5K runner with already a world championship and I believe an Olympic medal. And maybe not an Olympic medal, maybe a, uh, a world championship outdoor medal. And got after it from there. But the interesting thing is that he has a lot of parallels with the Ingebrigtsen training. They both do a lot of thousand meter intervals and it's not a magic distance, but it's a really good distance to work at high end threshold on or on the Ingebrigtsen's case, low end threshold. And it allows you to do high volume there. Just getting thousands of steps in at marathon pace or faster, in this case, much faster and keep you fresh for your 120 and 140 mile weeks and your long quality runs. And the Ingebrigtsen's do the same thing. They're training like 5K, 10K runners, and he's racing the 1500 meter, the mile. So he's following this principle too. Why does he have this ramp it up kick that never ends on the last lap? Well, it's because he's also a 1248 to 1250, maybe even like a 1245 or lower 5K guy right now with 328, 1500 meter speed. He's essentially trained like a 5K, 10K guy for the last decade. And he drops down to the mile by sharpening up with speed work. So the greatest at their two disciplines right now are doing the same thing. High emphasis on thresholder, slightly faster or slightly slower. High volume, high frequency of training. And I don't need to take things this direction, but I will. So let's say Elliot is running 120 mile weeks, two quality sessions per week, one within a long runner. And it's more. It's probably at least three. Three. Okay, whatever it is. Three quality sessions a week. Because he's probably running 12 to 13, maybe 14 times. Right. And now most of this is done on flat terrain. So it'll vary from it. It'll deviate from like an ultra athlete. But if you start going looking at a Jim Walmsley Strava or a Killian Journey or even a, let's say a John Albin, although he's doing shorter distances and you start looking at the Maud Mathis um, Stravas and what they're doing, the time on feet isn't vastly different. Matt, it's different, but it's not that much different. Of course, they're chasing vert and Elliot isn't. But if Elliot had to hop into a 50 miler, a hundred K, a hundred miler, heaven forbid, his metrics and to take, I'm taking this one step further is that of a hundred mile ultra athlete, yet he's racing a quarter of that distance. Mm-hmm. And even Elliot, and I know it's commonplace for a lot of marathoners to run over a hundred mile weeks. And I understand that that's how people train these days in the same breath, his metrics don't look very different other than he's not chasing vert. He's spending that much time on feet. He really is training to 120% as we're saying and racing mm-hmm. down to the marathon. And I know that sounds goofy to say, but it is true. And then you combine that with a decade of purposeful marathon work and then two decades of high run training before that. And here you have it, but he really is training to 120%. And he really could on paper look like he's training for ultras, yet he's a marathoner. And I don't think Elliot's on Strava and I don't think we can confirm that. However, is he on Strava? I wouldn't know. Probably not. Why would he be? I don't know. Um, But really I'm not wrong. Poke holes in that. No. Well, I can't. What I can do is Go off down the rabbit hole of linking those athletes together. Jim Walmsley, Killian Jornet, John Albin, Maud Mathis. I, I put uh, Zach Miller in there. People who have done really well at ultras this year and in past years. I would argue that they are the athletes who have spent the most time at race stride. 
and the most time getting long hours on their feet. I mean, Jim Walmsley does crazy volume, crazy vert, but he does a lot of work around his race stride. These are people who their stride doesn't fall off towards the end of the race. Killian's stride doesn't fall off. Zach Miller, he starts ugly running, but he's kind of naturally an ugly runner. I don't think that's a, that to a distance runner, that's not really an insult. That means he doesn't have a prancy, flowy stride. He fights mm-hmm. for it. He charges for it like a rhinoceros. He reminds me of Andrew mm-hmm. Perkins. Remember watching mm-hmm. him run back in the day oh, yeah. in Wisconsin? Just muscly, thick-legged, aggression-based runners. And he keeps that all the way to the end. There's that famous, I think it's North Face 50 or whatever it is, where he breaks 16, his final 5K in a 50-miler. And he's just like flaring his nostrils, frothing at the mouth, audibly grunting and like gasping on every stride and just churning towards the finish line. These are the people that have spent more time at race stride and more time on long vert days than anyone else. And they're the ones that don't fade. Has anyone spent more time running downhill using their race stride than Ryan Atkins? Has anyone spent more long days playing in the mountains than him? Has anyone chased more vert than Ryland this year? You know, these are the people that have spent more time using their body in the specific demands or longer than what their race is going to be. And they all, to some extent, balance it out with enough mechanical speed work to not decay into a slow-footed distance runner. You know, and I have more examples of that, even in our pool of people who we've interviewed. Uh, Danny Moreno, who we didn't interview long ago, just bought punched her ticket to uh, the Golden Trail World Series stage race. Fine. The hard way. The hard way, by having to earn <laughs> it on the last race of the series. Um, you know, when we talk to her, she's doing back-to-back long runs on the weekend. She's cramming in a bunch of volume. And yes, some of she has run a mountain marathon, but she's very much, or she has had to race a mountain marathon this season, but she's running a lot of two hour races and yet she's training. Like she's got to be out there for five, six, seven hours and yeah. racing some of her best stuff at one to two hours. Danny just ran 16, I don't know, 15 and a 5k. Her, her lifetime PR, I believe is what she said. While she's doing back-to-back long runs and racing mountain marathons, she goes up and runs her fastest 5K in her entire life on the roads. You think that's coincidence? It's not coincidence, folks. I guess we can beat a dead horse with a million examples of that, but we don't need to do that. Let's flip the script to OCRWC. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking at that, let's use like our Tyler as an example. Um, Make sense of it for me. Make sense of that performance. So... Just to reiterate, Tyler Veerman was the OCR uh, world champ in the 15K. Um, and I know you mentioned it, but just to reiterate, the ultra world champs in Tahoe were supposed to be the exact same weekend, 24-hour race in the mountains that Tyler and many others were training for. And when that was canceled due to wild, wildfires, he pivoted and said, screw it, I'm not going to race for 24 hours, I'm going to go race for two. And he did it, and then he went and he won. And he won 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Yeah, 90 <laughs> minutes. And he went and he won, and he won convincingly. In a race in which he's never even done before. He hadn't even touched the obstacles, most of them, before. If To my knowledge, somebody could correct me on that. So I'll... So I'll no. He didn't do the 3K the day before. I believe he rabbited, didn't he? I don't think he even did that, did he? I believe he was behind a camera. But regardless... Oh, he might have been. Regardless, make sense of that for me then. Let's just break it down on this side for people, Bracken. 
Well, I can't speak to exactly what he did in training because he's not one of those big social media guys. But I can speak to the Tyler that I met in 2014, maybe, in Indiana and saw at a hard charge in 2014, I think, in Tyler Illinois. used to pay you for your services. Remember those days? Tyler used to pay me to coach uh-huh. him. <laughs> Tyler has surpassed that. Tyler's doing... He was doing his own thing for a bit, and I believe he is with uh, Megan now. Megan Roche now. Megan Roche. The Tyler I met back then was a raw athlete. This kid was bounding over obstacles, using crazy surges, burning matches left and right. And my brother and I both talked about him because my brother raced him in Indiana. We have a picture of the three of us coming out of one of the muddiest barbed wire crawls I've ever done in my life. Top two muddiest races I've ever run in my entire life. And we had a barbed wire crawl and my brother and I came up out of it. And there's Tyler in baggy shorts charging up the hill. And I'm running with my arm carriage, like in line with myself. My brother's got his arms low. We're working up out of this mud pit uphill. And Tyler's got one arm up above his forehead, charging up this hill. And that was just him. He was just this this raw athlete. He had a real foot speed. He's springy. He's got some good fast twitch. And he was in a performing circus group in college. So he's very good with body composure, body awareness in the air. He moves through obstacles very well. And you take a guy like that, who is known for getting out hard in races and fading, and you train him for a 24-hour event, and he shows up the perfect mixture of napalm to drop on a course. He can still get out hard, but now he doesn't fade. And that's scary. That's exactly right. I think you made pretty good sense of that. And I believe in his description which he's not one to he's not one to say this unless it one were true and two not to be excusey because he's never excusey. So this isn't what I'm getting at, but no. He said I didn't even feel particularly well like running at that like my legs didn't feel particularly great. I didn't even feel that good out there. And you know what that actually makes sense with somebody who's training for longer grindier yes. stuff. That level of intensity sucks, but somehow your body is able to sit in that suck and not Crumble. And that's coming down from altitude. That's also coming down from altitude. But you will often see that in the sense where like, yeah, it was uncomfortable. Of course, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're actually working at a rate you haven't worked at a lot in training. But you've been working at a, a grade just below that so much that you can take that sharp sting of that knife and just sit in it. And that's what he did. He went out there and didn't mm-hmm. even feel that great, but it didn't matter. Because even if he felt crappy... What does he fall back on? His base. And what is his base? Fantastic. It's like no questions to ask here. It's like no no crap. And, and even like, a, you know, Ryan Atkins, who some can be disappointed in his performances. I think he was, what was he, third and got bumped to second? Third and second. Yeah. So without the DQ, third and third in the world on an off year. Like, bummer, huh? <laughs> the only reason Ryan Atkins continues to show up in podium or even in a race, what was he fourth in, in the North American champs where he wasn't mm-hmm. happy with his effort. Um, the only reason Ryan Atkins has a prayer at any of these is because he's done big volume way beyond what he needs to do for any of the races he's racing on our race brain episode last week or two weeks ago. when we were talking about the suspected ultra, which never happened. We figured Ryan Atkins hasn't raced in ultra since like 2018 or 19 yet we look at him as the ultra guy 
But when you watch what he's doing, 100-mile bike races, big volume every day. Dude's still training like an ultra athlete, even if he's not running much. His volume is so high, and then he races down to a 3K and a 15K, and what he claims is not running much recently until the last month or two, and he's still able to podium. He's over-training for the test yet again with his volume, and that's why he can come back and be so good time and time again. People often say Ryan Atkins, like, imagine if he trains specifically. Is he so good because of or despite the fact that he goes and plays so much? Well, maybe he's good because he goes and plays so much, because he puts in so much non-specific race volume, all this long, grindy stuff. starting to realize that maybe, just maybe, whether he knows it or not, he's on to something. There's a lot to that. Yeah. You and I come from the track world. Mm -hmm. People would always have that debate, high mileage versus low mileage for the 1500 meter. The mile is kind of one of the premier events, and it's the last true middle distance event since they don't run a 3K outdoors. So after that, you bump up to 5K, which is just considered a distance race at the college level. It might even be middle distance now for pros, how fast they're running it. But the mile, they were high mileage milers and low mileage milers. And I was low mileage. I trained like a 400, 800 meter runner, and I bumped up to the mile. And I had some success there. People would say, why would you run 80 to 100 miles a week for a four-minute race? What is that? And the answer is that it may not make you faster on any one given performance. Hmm. But it's bulletproofing. It's armor that you're putting on so that when things happen, you don't fall apart. When you get tripped up, when the race goes out too hot, when it's super stormy, when it's 100 degrees out, when you have to run prelims, trials, uh, finals, prelim semis and finals, when you have to race back-to-back days, that's when it comes into play because you can just handle those things. And that's the same thing with trail running, road running, and OCR. I I firmly believe at this point, if you want to be ready to hang in anywhere between a 10 and a 13-mile OCR championship race, you need to be ready to run a fast, hard, nasty trail 50K at the drop of a hat. If you're not ready to race a 50K, you're not ready for a nasty half marathon on the trails with vert. Because the moment something happens, the moment you fail an obstacle or have a really rough descent or have to over rev on a climb or a super heavy carry hits you or you fail an obstacle and you have to do burpees or even if it's not on o- in OCR that when you when you have you fall going downhill or the terrain steeper than you thought, the moment anything like that happens. If you don't have the armor of big volume training, you fall apart and you can't get it back together. But if you have the armor of big volume training, you can recover on the next thing and then get back on the race. And that is a proven fact with athletes over the course of of history, that the bigger volume you have, the more you can recover mid-race from things that would be catastrophic to a low-volume athlete. There's just no wiggle room other than nailing the race when you are low volume. Well, it's like a low volume athlete, I guess this analogy is going to be a stretch, but I'm going to make it anyways, is going to go out there and it's like going that. to go out there and win if they have their A race. They put everything together and they mm-hmm. go out and they show up. Their legs feel good. They get out there like today's a good day. They execute well. They're tactically sound. They fly through obstacles or navigate the course well, and they nail it. That's the only way athlete one can win is if he has an A race. He nails it. 
But athlete two, the over volumer, the 120 percenter, can win by having his A race, his B race, or his C race. He can win when he goes out and has his day that we all dream of, of course. Then it's gonna he's going to sweep the floor with him. But let's say he has his B race, and he shows up and his legs are a little sluggish, and it takes him half the race to work into it somehow. Well, when he works into it, watch out. He's going to make up all the ground he lost and then some. He's going to kick your ass. Let's say he has a C race. He goes out and feels like crap from the gun. He's working at a compromised percentage of what he's capable of. That compromised percentage is only a fraction lower than what he's really capable of because he's able to hold it. And somehow he hangs on, makes a couple tactical right moves, nails his effort even though it's not his best day, and wins. The overvolume, the 120 percenter, can beat you three ways. The mm-hmm. nailing the volume or just a lower mileage athlete can beat you, and he very well does very often. But he has to have his 1A race to do it, where the 120 percenter can have his A, B, or C performance still find a way to win. That's the biggest difference in my eyes. I don't know if that was a stretch or not. It really is. No, it's not a stretch, and I have personal experience with that. The only time I've been a uh... What I would say is legitimately high where I'm training over 10 hours of cardio mm-hmm. per week mm-hmm. and all of that being running, five digits plus of, uh, of vert per week. And the very first time I raced at sea level after having a good stint up there was in a stadium race down in Dallas. And we got out decent and I didn't like some of the things that were happening at the front of the race. And I made a crazy surge just out of spite, a crazy surge. And I came around the corner and thought, I am cooked. And I dogged the next like 30, 60 seconds of a race and just thought like, well, this is it. This is what happens. And then I leaned in and made another push and I was back racing again. Mm -hmm. And it hurt all the rest of the way, but I was able to race the rest of the way. And it was like, huh, this is, I haven't felt this before. And then after another Another uh, winter of training, I came out in spring and I went to a race. It was a national series race and I didn't feel particularly good from the start. I felt good for like 200 meters and then I got that really heavy feeling that descends on you sometimes as soon as the race sets in. I don't know if it's adrenaline dump or Mm -hmm. what. I started moving backwards through the field and all the signs of blow up were there for me. But I just kept being able to throw another surge at it, throw another surge and eventually... I had a phenomenal last two miles of the race and felt strong. I was hurting still, but now I was racing hard again. And those options were never there until I was a high volume athlete. Which race was that? That would have been Montana. Got it. Yeah, you took second there, didn't you? Yeah. And I had a I had an experience like that in Breckenridge where I didn't I felt really good and then felt really terrible and then was able to close out. These races, I never had that option. It either went well or I cracked and I stumbled in. And that's kind of what I've gone back to since then. I can either hit the race or I don't. But the volume gives you the armor to be able to have that secondary option. Or that tertiary option, just in case it goes real Or the bad. tertiary. Set of burpees in there, an obstacle failure, fall down the mountain. Could use a tertiary. Very smart. Man. So this is the part where we reassure people, I think. We close this out by reminding that when we say high volume, we don't mean run volume. We, need, we mean training volume. You have to be ready for a longer distance than what you're training for and harsher demands than what your race entails. But it doesn't mean you have to run 120 miles. It means you have to have big volume. How you get there is you say, well, I couldn't do that. 
and then you back down the running and fill it with something else. And that's too much. I back down the running a little more and then I fill it with something else. The volume must be there. The big workouts must be there. And what you do in between those workouts is up to what your body can handle. And that's the saving grace out of all of this is that high volume doesn't mean running a lot. It means running the most that you can run safely while being ready for the race, but filling all your time in just like the pro would hit that time, but you do it in other modalities. Well said. I think it's part of um, my recent fitness bump is I'm not even necessarily high mileage, maybe teetering, not even high volume, but in the one way I am going 120% is when I have a quality day, it's like I'm getting ready for a marathon, even though I'm not Mm -hmm. racing one at the moment. And the point being is, yeah, you can find a way to overshoot or hit your 120%, whether it is run volume, overall volume, the uh, general load of your quality days, as you outlined, you can find many ways to sort of work this, to have you over-prepared, we will call it. Um, mm-hmm. All right. I feel good. I feel good. We did, we gave you theory there today, but I think it's valuable discussion. Did we miss anything? Lots of things are missed, but this is the, this is the discussion that precedes an off-season. Yep. This is the time of year where people have their come-to-Jesus moments on course and think, did I screw it up? Did I do it right? Is there a next level? Should I give up? Well, there's always the option of when in doubt, go longer, yep. train longer. And this is the time to start thinking about that. Mull this over, kick it around in your brain for a while as off season rapidly approaches and decide, is this my time where I just start doing that? And when it is, if you want help, reach out and we'll help you or go find someone else who can help you with it. But this is the time to start thinking about that theory. I agree. Um, Shirts are done, folks, and they are sweet. We also have uh, fleece-lined and non-fleece-lined winter running hats that are going to be dropping as well. Just got to get them out on the website so you can buy them, but uh, start saving your pennies, all right, because you're going to want these things. Maybe in the next week we'll have them up for purchase. You couldn't see it, ladies and gentlemen, but my eyebrows shot up to the ceiling. I'm excited for these. And and Bracken needs two of every color, one for regular and then one he needs to make into a cutoff. He just sucks. Our bottom line just suffers because of his need for options. I need an extra medium to look jacked, and then I need that small. I can pop the sleeves off and look super jacked. A lot of work working with Bracken. (laughs) It is. Hopefully you got something out of today, and uh, this is a lesson that I am constantly reminding myself of, and I think hopefully this will hit a chord for one or two of you and go for that 120, right? And Tyler Veerman, I'm real happy for you, my man. Congratulations. Congrats to everyone this weekend, but in particular, that is how you make lemonade out of lemons right there. Sure is, folks. See you Friday.